0: Good morning. When my mother was three years old, her grandfather and aunt were killed when a train hit their car. This was in the early 1920s in rural Ohio. My grandparents had been contentedly raising their family, and just like that, everything changed. They were expected to move into the big farmhouse on the family land and help my great-grandmother after she lost her husband. That's how it's supposed to be, right? Families helping families from the earliest dawn of time. Elders knowing they'd be supported in their frailer years. I don't know about your families, they're probably all perfect, but it really wasn't so hot for my grandmother. She didn't really like her mother-in-law, my great-grandmother. As for my grandfather, he hadn't really wanted to be a farmer. He dreamed of being an engineer. But dreams were put on hold back then, and they did their duty and cared for my great-grandmother. But the family story always made me a bit skeptical about the good old days, which we often view with a rosy nostalgia. Back then, we think, people took care of their own. Life was better. By the time my grandparents were old themselves, the nursing home had become entrenched across the American landscape thousands and thousands of hospital-like structures that warehoused and isolated elders until they could make their graceful exit off the planet. So it's no wonder that over time, a counter-narrative took hold in our culture. We went from, let's take care of our own, to what I think of as the John Wayne approach to growing old. Going it alone. This is expressed in all sorts of ways. I don't want to impose. I don't want to be a burden. I'm not moving. The upshot is we've ended up with tens of millions of older people who think the ideal is to live alone and be independent. Why, she's still 98 and still lives on her own, people say with both admiration and worry. She just refuses to give up her house. Many of us are familiar with this story from our own families. In his book on senior co-housing, Charles Durrett wrote about his own mother and how her insistence on going it alone Led to unhappy consequences. She was determined to live out her days on her own terms, he writes, telling herself that she was in complete control. Nobody was going to tell her what to do and how to live. Ten years later, she spent her last chapter in an institutional nursing home. Where he wrote, she has no choice but to live according to the whims and timetables set by the staff. She lives alone among strangers, her chance to make a deliberate and realistic choice as to how and where she would live out her last years long since past. What can seem like stubborn foolishness of some elders is often rooted in denial. Denial that anything truly awful could actually happen to us. I've learned that denial is not our friend. Being proactive and intentional about our next chapter Puts us in a much better place from which to weather life's challenges. A few years back, I noticed that people were organizing to do just that. It hit me when I met a woman named Lynn Moore from Port Gibson, Mississippi. She told me that she and her friends had had a fantasy for years. When they grew old, instead of living alone or moving to a traditional retirement community, they wanted to buy a piece of land. And on it, they would build a new kind of structure. She imagined it round, and each would have their own apartment within this, and in the center would be a common area where, as they grew older and needed more help, they could hire folks to help maybe with cooking, cleaning, even personal care. That would be a way of taking care of each other, she told me, but still have privacy. Conversations like this one are taking place all over the country, as my generation of baby boomers realizes that middle age is quickly receding in the rearview mirror and then what we're starting to ask then what that question often arises as we struggle to assist our parents now very old as they lose mobility lose memory lose independence we see them and it can be troubling even terrifying to imagine ourselves in their shoes Can it really be that in the blink of an eye, we will be the ones our own children fret about? Will we face the same choices as our parents, choices that many of us find very limited? But rather than go straight to denial, many people in my generation, and some who are older, are reimagining how they want to live their next chapter— They're realizing that there might be alternatives to living alone or moving in with their kids or moving to a traditional retirement community or worse. People are saying, maybe I can take charge of my future and be intentional and create a way to live that could truly make me happy. So what are people coming up with? It's quite remarkable, the variety of options and this is not a complete list there are trailer park cooperatives from New Hampshire to Oregon and apartment cooperatives in New York City there is co-housing both multi-generational and senior there's the village model there are NORCs naturally occurring retirement communities There's something called the Community Without Walls in Princeton, where people have formed friendship networks. There are senior artist colonies designed for aging actors, violinists, and painters. There are communities of older gays and lesbians, and retired union postal workers, and Unitarians, and Zen Buddhists. In Texas, there's even a community of aging RV lifers. People who are too frail or sick to hit the road, but they can't give up their Winnebago. And they've circled the wagons, so to speak, forming a loose-knit, assisted-living community to support each other. Where well, Ross and I are actually going there next week on my book tour. <laughs> They're our best friends deciding to move in together there are total strangers sharing houses. And of course, there are still families figuring out how to be together and help each other, perhaps in ways more reciprocal than the way my grandparents did it. Just as in my previous book, in which I told the story of people seeking to transform nursing homes... I realized that these pioneering efforts to age in community that this was a story worth telling and that became the seed of my new book what I came to believe is that all these models for living are rooted in two fundamental values on the one hand autonomy and independence on the other hand close relationships and community what some aging advocates call interdependence. Interdependence, they suggest, should be our beacon as we grow old, not independence. The more I delved into this topic, the more I began to view it as evidence of ethical culture, alive and well. The founder of ethical culture, Felix Adler, Spoke of what he called the ethical manifold. He wrote The ideal is a community of uniquely differentiated individuals. The communities I write about seek to do that in their own way. They honor each other's worth and individual uniqueness by giving each other space and privacy and boundaries. And they do this amid a network of close relationships. Unlike the ideal of many religions, which sees perfection in an afterlife, our ideal is one we can pursue right here, right now. Moreover, living with interdependence is actually good for our health. And I don't just mean emotional health. It turns out that the John Wayne approach may be bad for us. A growing body of research finds that loneliness and isolation can actually be deadly. Studies have found that loneliness negatively affects our stress hormones, our blood pressure, levels of inflammation, our immune systems in general. At the same time, research finds that, health, that there are real health benefits to having a strong social network. A few years ago, there was a meta-analysis done where they look at the results of a whole bunch of studies and distill the main findings. It found that the influence of social connection on our mortality, on how long we live, was surprisingly strong comparable to the effects of smoking and even more important than exercise and obesity. In fact, Wendell Berry, the writer, wrote that community is the smallest unit of health and that to speak of the health of an isolated individual is a contradiction in terms. So, at least as important as jogging or eating kale, is our need for friendship and purpose in life. You might be happy to hear that. (laughs) One model that I write about that seeks to provide a strong sense of community that you may have heard about is the village, a neighbors helping neighbors model. It's a membership organization, each village, and they're popping up around the country. In fact, we have someone today who's active in the Silver Spring Village. It's a very simple concept. It connects older people to each other and to resources that might help them in their community. So far, there's 125 villages up and running and another 100 getting formed in 40-some states. And the D.C. area is a hotbed of villages including a new one in this very neighborhood where Wes is. Some villages, like the original one in Boston's Beacon Hill neighborhood, a very prosperous neighborhood, describe themselves as concierge services. Village members, when they need things like a ride or home maintenance services, can call one central number for help. When I asked villages what kind of requests they get from their members, it can be anything. I visited Capitol Hill Village, which is one of the most successful in the nation. While I was there, a member called who wanted someone to come house-sit because she couldn't be home during the time a delivery was going to be made. This village has a pool of hundreds of volunteers they could call on. Gail Cohn, who was then the director, tried first to ask the older member themselves rather than the younger volunteers. The reason, she said, is that she sees the village not as a concierge service, but as a community. She sees it as a way to create purpose and meaning in members' lives. And it turns out Felix Adler has something to tell us about that, too. The greatest disease in modern society, he wrote, is lack of purpose. Lack of purpose. I would add that's especially true in our culture as we grow old. Many of us lack meaningful ways to grow, to contribute, to have purpose. But at Capitol Hill Village, this is foundational. So, when Gail Cohn needed to find a volunteer to house-sit, whom did she call? She called a member who is badly disabled, who can't drive, who has a hard time walking, and asked him to help. He was delighted to. That, of course, meant that she had to find another volunteer to give this volunteer a ride. But it didn't matter. It wasn't about efficiency. It was about community and having purpose. Village members request all sorts of things. Learning how to use their home computers. Helping install a new belt in an old vacuum cleaner. Picking up fried chicken when it's on sale at Harris Teeter's. One of the funniest was a request from a lady whose cat had to go on Metamucil for a few days. She, and I mean here the lady, not the cat, didn't want to buy a whole jar of Metamucil. And she called the village to see if anyone could give her a small amount. (laughs) Which they did. Another 100-year-old woman had a hankering for a slice of pizza, and of course she couldn't eat a whole one. So the next day, the staff of the village ordered a pizza and took her a couple of slices. Sonia Crow, who's the former director of Palisades Village here in Washington, says part of the beauty of this is that over time, people learn to let go, to trust To ask and not feel bad about it. She said there are pockets of real grace with this village. Pockets of real grace. One thing Sonia did was connect elders with young people in the community. She regularly called schools and tried to initiate intergenerational activities and she found a school nearby where the principal thought it would be great for the four-year-olds to get to know an older person in their community. The oldest member then of Palisades Village was Miss Betty, who was 96 and happened to live near the school. So the idea was the kids would go on a field trip to Miss Betty's at Christmas time. She served the children cookies and milk, and together they sang holiday songs. The kids enjoyed it so much, the teachers decided to continue the relationship. Next, Miss Betty was invited to visit the children for a tea party at their school. And on and on it went, green milkshakes at St. Patrick's Day, and they came to Miss Betty's for an Easter egg hunt. In Bannockburn, the older neighborhood in Bethesda that also has a village, they've created a wise elders project something that I think would be great if we could replicate here at West. In this project, a teen will be matched with an older person, and together they'll do a project. It could be um, uh, oral history. They could do a music duet together, create a video. Could be anything that the two of them want to do. And then in the middle of Bannockburn is a little community center and the two will present their project to the community, and they all invite friends and family. The kids, I think, even get community service for their school. Um, But it's been a really great way to connect the generations. I want to talk about a couple of other models that people here in our West community are part of. One is co-housing, we have several members who live in either Tacoma Village or Eastern Village co-housing. Co-housing, if you don't know, is an intentional community designed architecturally and organizationally from the ground up to foster relationship. They have lots of large common spaces, so, for example, once a week, people can all eat together in a common dining room, or there'll be a, lo- a big den where 15 or 20 people might watch a movie together. Ann Zabaldo, who lives in Tacoma Village and is very active in the national co-housing movement, told me she thinks why she thinks this model is growing. On a deeper level, across the board, There's a yearning for connectedness, she said. A yearning for connectedness. What could be more ethical culture-ish than that? One of the residents I interviewed at Elder Spirit, which is a senior co-housing community in southwestern Virginia, started by a former nun, told me why she was glad she had moved there. You have neighbors wanting to live in an intentional community, who want to participate in common meals, who have concern for the environment, and who have an interest in late life spirituality. You can usually find someone to visit with. It's a proactive way to plan for older, more frail years so that a community of friendship can be built for as long as possible. I also write about Greenbelt, Maryland, which is considered a NORC, a Naturally Occurring Retirement Community. I don't know if you've all been to Greenbelt, but it has an unusual history, having been the first federally owned planned community in the nation in 1937. It was viewed as a social experiment created both to provide affordable housing to low-income people and to foster a sense of community. The town's physical layout fosters neighborliness and civic participation. In the 1950s, it converted from federal ownership to cooperative housing, and today the town's a national historic landmark people still take pride in their close-knit progressive culture. The high school is named Eleanor Roosevelt, and one of the few places to get a bite to eat is the New Deal Cafe. (laughs) Greenbelt has developed a whole raft of programs and services that allow older people to remain there in their own homes, hopefully throughout their lives. One piece of this is a volunteer bank, which, like the village, nurtures a neighbors-helping-neighbors philosophy, primarily aimed at helping older people stay there. Some 200 volunteers provide services to each other, and 70% of these volunteers, of course, are older people themselves, again, giving people a simple, natural way they can contribute. Tom White, who is an older resident there, compares Greenbelt to a large developer-built retirement community that's actually quite famous that he visited in Florida. There, he said practically everybody had a golf cart and there would be a huge competition for how snazzy your golf cart could be. Every night there'd be happy hour or karaoke or some festivity. The people there were really living it up. But, he said, to me it was kind of sterile. It's a beautiful place and has a lot of activities, but it was like make believe. I'd pick Greenbelt over that any day, he said. What he meant, I think, was that Greenbelt was a genuine a community, a place where real relationships can flourish and opportunities are all around you to give back. One other example I want to briefly mention is house sharing, which is suddenly in the news quite a bit. Our own Lindsay Luke, who's here today, is an example of close friends moving in together. Lindsay and her housemate Sandy talked to me about their living situation and how they successfully negotiated all the little minefields that can blow up in your face when you live together. We are all human, after all. Lindsay told me, I feel more sure about the close connection in this relationship. We reassure each other that problems are not a threat to our friendship. And Sandy shared that even though living together was sometimes hard, the benefits made it well worth it. Safety, companionship, help, friendship, it's enjoyable, she said. This one is hard to talk about, but Lindsay brings something to my life that I need, even though it's hard for me. She said, I'm a low-energy introvert. I feel I need her presence to keep from being a lonely and alone old woman. What I find so heartening in the words of the people I interviewed was the echo of what we believe here at West. It renews my faith that people will gravitate toward ethical culture because what we believe is rooted in our own best interests. We believe in supporting each other through the stages of life and that each person has worth and gifts to contribute. We believe in nurturing the spirit of creativity that dwells within all of us. And most of all, we believe in the transcendent power of relationship and community. Whether we find that connectedness in our neighborhoods, with our friends and family, or here at West, we need it just as much when we're old as any other time, or perhaps especially when we are old. As I write at the end of my book, aging in community doesn't begin when we turn a particular age, 60, 80. It begins right now, whatever our age. Forming relationships, lending a hand, sharing a laugh, knowing you're there for each other. It matters not what form or structure our communities take, or if they have no structure at all. The point is to have a community, a circle of caring, made of family, friends, and neighbors who will be there for the long haul as best they can as we live our final chapter. Thank you very much.